0: My name is Maria Kent-Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. who I am where I come from my today we are so excited to have a very special duo with us our first sister interview we have Susan and joanne and they are here to talk about their sweet mom the first thing we always jump into guys is what was that first moment of wait a minute, something's not quite right with mom.
1: The biggest thing was that our mom lost her job early in life. Well, like in her her 60s, she didn't make it to 65 for retirement. She was given the option to either quit or take an early retirement. And so that was kind of an indicator to us. And Joanne, I know, has some more details to share about that. But with that, some of the behaviors that we saw in her were inabilities to complete tasks, poor money decisions, really strong anxiety and lots of compulsion. Our mom was able to cook for hundreds of people at a time and for for many days at different events. She was a really capable woman. When she started to burn chicken at family dinners or serve uncooked rice, we knew that there was an issue. And these were things that we saw over time and kind of looking back. We were able to kind of put some pieces together, but it wasn't always clear right away. But she lost her car at a really familiar park and had to be driven home by a stranger because she didn't know how to find her car again. She had headaches that caused her to miss out on events that were really important to her. She was an avid churchgoer each week, and she woke up every Sunday morning. She said, I just can't go. She had money troubles. She was spending hundreds of dollars at kiosks in the middle of the mall, buying makeup, really odd behaviors. She had really strong anxiety. She thought people were in her backyard. She would constantly look out her window to see who was driving by and, and just these compulsions of counting squares in her kitchen. So this anxiety and compulsion and just, we saw these changes in her. It wasn't because she was old. So
2: Susan, how old was she at this time?
1: Now that we look back, we can see symptoms as early as 2008. So that was when she was 60. She lost her job. I think it was at 63.
2: Okay. And what did she do for a living? What was her yeah. job?
1: She worked for our church as a financial secretary. So something that she had done for many, many years. So a lot of functioning had to be done to mm-hmm. take care of those finances.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And tell me, Susan and Joanne, where are you guys located in relation to where your parents were living at this time?
3: Both of us were within 45 minutes of them. So I'm the oldest, she's the youngest, and there's two in the middle. And all four of us live in the general area of Western Washington.
2: Were your parents married at this time? They were, and they what were. was your dad, what was he, what he call like mom's, you know, counting her squares again. And she served me raw chicken. What was
3: he, what was his stance on all of this? He had a very hard time. I think it's somewhat generational. He was not, he was a great dad and he loved his children, but he had a really hard time as a caregiver. And just as a side note, I want to make sure we come across like I support him and he was going through a very horrible, hard thing, but we had to work just as hard to support my dad as we had to to take care of my mom.
0: Oh, I understand that. I think Uh, there's actual support groups for male caregivers for FTD because it's just such a like, yeah, I don't know. It's just not, I don't want to say it's not natural to them, but it's a big change for them. It
3: was, he would um, call us. Uh, He would leave the house and he would drive to one of his favorite spots by the water. And he would call me and he'd say, I left the house. I couldn't handle it anymore. And I'd say, okay, take a few minutes, but you have to go back. She needs you there. Like this was early stages. So it actually got better as she got worse. It was some of those early stages where she was just so anxious. She was just writing him all the time. It was very hard for him, but we had to do a lot of support for my dad in addition to taking care of my mom.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that probably resonates with a lot of people because I, 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 it resonates with me. I mean, my dad was an incredible caregiver, but I was just as worried, if not more worried about him and his health sometimes in that role than I was my mother.
1: I think part of that was my mom was so functional in terms of cooking and what she did around the house. We've been reading these journal entries that, that she had written in the past, the cooking and, and things like that. So then when she was kind of withdrawing from things that were so normal, my dad felt like his, the love of his life was changing. And now he had to take on all these extra responsibilities. So he didn't have the time to process what was happening, and just felt like everything was dumped on him. And, and how, hard, how hard is that in, yeah. in this process?
0: Absolutely.
1: So, what were the
2: next steps? So, you kind of noticed, like, okay, something's going on. We don't really know what it is. When was the first doctor's appointment? What kind of happened next?
3: Yeah. So, when she lost her job, we started putting pieces together and realized there was something going on. And unfortunately, we had stories that her father passed away in his sixties from something they called Alzheimer's at the time. And we didn't, we didn't know him. She was in her, I think she was 24 or 25 when her dad died. And we just had heard these stories. So I immediately started putting two and two together and thought, wow, if she's something's going on, I was afraid that it was related to whatever happened with her dad. So, We started the process. We found a neurologist close to their house and we met with them and it was a lengthy process, just like so many people have had that similar experience. This neurologist did a bunch of tests. We ruled out, you know, strokes and she tried treating her for anxiety and depression. I think it took about 18 months from when we started meeting with this neurologist. And I think we'd go about every six months. She tried her on some medications, a few, she ran some tests. She'd give her like those Alzheimer's tests and she could pass all those things. It wasn't a memory thing. So I actually was doing my own research. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I ran into some information about FTD. And so at the next appointment, I suggested, what about this FTD? And the neurologist said, well, maybe. And she literally left the room. And printed off some sheets from the internet, brought them back to me and said, here's some information about FTD. And I said, do we come back and see you again? And she said, well, if you don't need medication, I don't know what I can do for you. So luckily about that same time, I found an FTD support group through the AFTD that met in Seattle. So my dad and I started attending that support group. And at the support group, we found other people who had experience in FTD in Seattle And there were a couple of neurologists that were recommended. So we switched to a new doctor. And when we went to a doctor who was familiar with FTD, it was a night and day difference just in the test questions alone. So my mom could pass the Alzheimer's test questions, but when they asked the FTD related questions, she couldn't do it. She couldn't you know, copy patterns and things like that. It was the executive function. Draw the
0: face of the clock. Draw, Draw the, the face clock. of the clock.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Or the one where you connect the A to the one and then two to B, where you're alternating between numbers and letters. Things like that. It just was so eye-opening when they asked the right questions. Right. So this doctor knew what to look for. And but you were the investigator.
2: Should we change your name on here to uh, Dr. Joanne? Because it sounds like <laughs> you're the one that uh, got her the diagnosis. What was your mom's temperament like at this time? Was she still really anxious or was she angry? What was her personality like?
3: She was very anxious. She thought that people were outside their house. Uh, so I, I have four kids. And at the time, I think my oldest was maybe driving but certainly wouldn't ever go to his grandparents' house and hang out outside of his. And she would call me and say, I think that your son is outside on the porch and things like that. And it was just, it was disorienting to her. They live on a busy street corner and there was just people that would be walking by and she, it, it would bother her. But I mean, my mom was pleasant really the majority of the time. Her personality changed we didn't have to deal with violence or a lot of anger. She never understood that something was wrong with her. Uh, she never thought she was sick. So all these doctor's appointments and all of the things we were trying to do to help, I would go with them and I would tell her, just come. We're trying to keep you safe. So I need you to come with me and we need to do this but she never understood there was something wrong.
1: I remember a moment when she sat me, like we sat down and had a conversation and she was like, Susan, do you think that there's really something wrong with me? And I, you know, that was a really heartbreaking moment for me because it was like, we are here to support you and love you. Just like Joanne said, we're here to keep you safe, but we know that there's changes happening for you and we just want what's best for you. And she said, I just don't think that there's something wrong. And I just had to keep it that, you know, we just had to keep it that way. And that was pretty early on. I don't even remember if she had the official diagnosis or not yet, but she had those conversations pretty early on, but that didn't last for very long in terms of her ability to be able to express those emotions and even ask questions.
0: Were you given any sort of like PPA or behavioral, um, because I'm trying to piece together what she really was leaning towards.
3: So my mom had behavioral variant FTD, and we met with a team of doctors who were experts in FTD and other related dementias, and they monitored her as we went. And I'd have to look at the timeline for sure, but it was within a year of meeting with those doctors that she started showing other symptoms of ALS. Um, They were being proactive and watching for certain things. And so they started noticing at the same time, we were noticing things, so we had all the behavioral issues, and then we were starting to have um, issues with she was falling a lot. Um, my mom loved to go on walks, and I mean was obsessive about her walks, and so we would take her to local malls, shopping malls, so we could walk safely in a mall and I remember taking her to a mall that we'd gone to often, and she had a walker by this point and she fell and I couldn't get her up. She couldn't get her feet under her. She couldn't understand what I was asking her to do. And I remember that was the last day that we went on a walk. So falling became an issue. One of the biggest issues for her in our family was eating. Um, she pocketed or chipmunked food, and which I think is a common thing for FTD, not just related to ALS, but we had to modify the way she was eating. Um, My dad, we had to teach him how to feed her. So we, she could, he could put one bite of food on her plate at a time. So the movement and the eating became our biggest challenges.
1: Can we
0: go back to, and just kind of set up the timeline again. So it was what year that you kind of started seeing the symptoms like 2008.
3: Yes. Well, 2008, she was 60 years old. Okay. We can see some symptoms back then. We didn't know at the time that they were symptoms. We started talking to people and my mom was um, a seamstress. She could sew beautiful things and we can talk more about this, but she was messing up on pant hems. We didn't know at the time. Right. It was going on, but those things were starting to happen.
0: So and- symptoms, 2008 official diagnosis in what year?
1: 2014.
0: And when, when did the ALS diagnosis come?
1: Fall of 2015. And she died in March of
3: 2016. Yeah. And once those symptoms really ramped up in the fall, it was a dramatic, quick decline.
2: And your dad was her primary caregiver the whole time? Or did you have to place her in a facility?
3: We did. We kept her at home. There was a strange combination of events that led to that, but they had a very good friend who was having his own knee replacement surgery and couldn't live in his apartment on the third floor. So my dad said, well, I've come, you're welcome to stay here during recovery. And he just stayed. And between my dad and his friend, who was this very generous man, they were her a team of caregivers. Oh, That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. We hired a CNA to come in during the day and we utilized tools from the community for respite care. But once we got the ALS diagnosis, the world of help opened up and we had a lot of resources available to us. They have something called the ALS closet and we could borrow anything for free. So the next thing we know we have a hospital bed, we have a recliner, yep. the electric recliner that helps get her out, out of se- her sitting position. Uh, they brought in rails for the bathroom. I mean, mm-hmm. all of these things. And so once we were able to set up our house, she was able to stay.
0: That's an interesting piece of information right. that you bring up. Yeah. That you know, ALS is much more widely known now and established and has a lot of you know, associations and organizations, we experienced the same with my mom. Like they would drop off like a free wheelchair and, and how different it is to feel like people understand. Sometimes I would even tell people when they asked what was going on with my mom, I would only say ALS because I knew people knew.
3: Oh, absolutely. That's why Susan and I have gotten so involved with the AFTD because we want that those same resources available for families Mm -hmm. with FTD as families with ALS.
0: Yes.
2: Yes. Say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) Susan, I see you quietly raising your hand over there. What's happening?
1: No, I just was thinking uh, important to know, and I think this was in my process of once she got the ALS diagnosis, they told us that she has perhaps 18 months to live at the time of diagnosis in the fall of 2015. And so I think what happened in my mind was ALS has all these resources because it's fast and aggressive, whereas FTD can be a little bit longer and, and slowly progress a little bit more. I know everyone's situation is so different, but with ALS also different in every situation, but where we were with my mom, we just knew that it was going to go much faster than if she had only had FTD.
0: Yeah. They had told my dad when my mom got her FTD diagnosis seven to 10 years. And that's what we hear in a lot of the interviews. And then once they confirmed and they're like, Oh, with the ALS two to four. So just really shortens up. Okay. Yep. And then they're like, see you later.
2: Good luck. I think what we should touch on because we have such a unique experience interviewing two sisters at the same time, one being the oldest and one being the youngest. Why don't you guys talk a little bit about what it was like for you watching your mom, watching your dad in your kind of family of origin. So being the oldest, like, did you feel you had more responsibility being the youngest? Were you more taken care of? What was it like for you guys?
3: I'll go first as the oldest. (laughs) Um, <laughs> uh, my dad turned to me and I really became a, a vital part of their caregiving. He turned to me to make all the decisions for both of them. Actually early on, because my mom used to take care of him so much, I planned out their menus for the week and told him what he should cook for them. I mean, that we had to go basics, right? So that's something that actually was difficult when after my mom died, my dad still turned to me to make decisions for him anyway so I was a critical part I think not by choice but you were you were sure of it <laughs> I was involved in all of it and actually this made it interesting when she passed I mourned caring for her I mourned I learned the loss of my mom but I also mourned that role as her caregiver
2: that's so funny I never thought I would do that and I did Like I was like, you know, when he passes, I'm just going to be kind of like, oh, okay. But you miss like worrying and you miss wondering like, is she okay? Did she have breakfast? Did she pocket her food? Is she warm? Is she hot? That's exactly how I felt. Even like the morning after when I woke up, I'm like, oh, is my dad awake yet? Oh, nope. He's not. (laughs) It
3: was a hard transition for me Mm -hmm. because my dad was, was ready to move on very quickly. He wanted me to give his, give my approval. But I had a much harder time processing and Mm. our our roles were different. Mm
2: -hmm. How interesting. How old was your dad when she passed away?
3: 66.
2: I'm sorry you had a difficult time. I'm sure being the oldest, it was a lot on your shoulders. I'm an only, so it was, I can maybe feel a little bit kind of what you felt. Yeah, I'm hard. the oldest.
0: I'm the oldest of four. So I okay.
2: get it.
3: But <laughs> so we, we are so lucky because I mean, really, I'm the oldest, she's the youngest, but these two in the middle have been vital parts. Really, we say that our family thrives on emergencies. <laughs> <So> we always <laughs> come together. We're a good team. And Susan was certainly a part of all of that.
2: Susan, let's hear it. How do you feel? How did how was it like for you?
3: So as
1: the baby of the family, unmarried. So mm-hmm. single and, you know, just, I was working, I I was out of college and things like that. And I, you know, I wasn't trying to always process what was in the future, but as a planner, you think about things in the future. Mm-hmm. I knew that with the diagnosis of FTD, that the end of this disease was the passing of her. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, at the beginning, I mourned a lot, like the experiences that I hoped to have getting married those things like that. It was hard. And then feeling like no one ever put pressure on me, but I felt like, well, I don't have my own family. So why can't I be more able to help and support my dad and my mom? And I I didn't necessarily step up to that all the time, but I felt that inner pressure again, not anyone gave that to me. And in fact, all three of my siblings were like, because I told them and they're like, we want you to feel like you continue to live your life. This is something that we're in it together. And our family, my dad, our, but especially the siblings, we stepped up, we made it happen. We did what we needed to. We took the opportunity to help support each other. I did always call Joanne our project manager. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> My you're the jefe. <laughs> yeah. So she just was able to keep us informed, give us information. And as someone who was younger, I mean, I was in my mid, you know, mid to upper twenties. And so it wasn't like a, a young, young child, but I felt a lot of pressure and sadness about mm-hmm. not being able to experience a lot of things that I anticipated for the future with my mom. And even while she was here, the experience of, of being able to talk about my new position at work or people I was dating. Like that's not a conversation I could have with my mom.
3: Over the last few years, that's probably been one of the hardest times when Susan got married and my mom was not there. I'll probably get emotional at this part. My mom sewed my wedding dress. This is what she did. This is what she wanted. And she was not there when Susan got married about a year and a half ago.
1: I actually brought out um sorry emotional too but no don't um, say sorry i have this necklace with a little elephant on it and we put this around my bouquet as a way to remember her on my wedding day she wouldn't have wanted a big spectacle of of you know memory of her but having this small token next to me in my hands. she loved elephants that's the why that's the reason that we mm-hmm. chose she had elephants around her home. She had stuffed animals for her grandkids when they came over to play. She loved elephants. So this little rose gold elephant was wrapped around the, the my bouquet and just a way to have her there with me that day in something that was important. Mm. And it was, it was sad. And I have learned through my grief that if I can anticipate emotions ahead of time, the grief's not so hard, but it is Difficult when you're when you're side, you know, blindsided by things that mm-hmm. come into play. That's how grief is, and that's how it's been for me. But uh, the wedding was great, and it was successful. There were moments the weeks leading up to it. I was like, I don't know what this is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I've just been a huge proponent. You have to feel your feelings, and if mm-hmm. that means that I ugly cry at my wedding because I miss my mom, that's what it is. Yes, but yes. That's not what happened. That's mm-hmm. not what happened. But. Um, it was, I, she was definitely there with us and I felt that comfort and knowing that she wants us to be happy. She Mm -hmm. doesn't want us to be sad and stop life because she's not here. She -hmm. wants us to be here and help other people. And that's why we do what we do.
2: Mm -hmm. It's hard when they miss out on the big things because you feel like it's my wedding day. I should be so happy, but there's this like, you feel kind of guilty being happy, and then you feel kind of guilty for feeling happy. It it's like a in your mind, you're like, whoa, how am I supposed to sort out all these feelings? I was the same on my wedding day too. It was really hard. My dad was still alive. He just couldn't attend because he was very symptomatic. So it would have been too much. But I remember that feeling like, mom, you're not really supposed to be me, like walking down the aisle with me. It's supposed to be dad, but I'm happy, but I'm sad and it's weird and it's messy.
0: I mean, so many people resonate with what you're saying. So I appreciate you opening up about it. And I was going to ask you, Susan, like, you know, how do you, how do you cope with those big moments? but you kind of answered before I could even ask, you know,
2: they're prepared. They're prepared. Yeah.
0: yeah, They are planners. Um, (laughs) They have it typed out. I love it. I think just being in your feelings and letting yourself feel it. That is just such a huge takeaway. I like that.
1: And and I, I think the more open you are about sometimes like today I have to feel my feelings and it's a harder day and that's okay. It gives people an idea That it's okay to be in your feelings, regardless if you lost your mom or your dad, or you're just having a hard day because we're going through a crazy time. Life is crazy right now. And so I think I, and I say that a lot, like feel your feelings. And that took me a long time and it's easier said than done on days. You're like, Nope, I can stifle this. I can push it down. I can be functional and get through my day. But it makes it harder in the long run if you don't take the time to process.
2: Yeah, because then you have that big feeling explosion and you're like, oh, I should have let this out 20, 20, 20 days ago when I started. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about what Sylvia was like before FTD? What was she like as a, my favorite question is, what was she like as a mom?
3: I'll start. So she grew up in a small town like north of Seattle called Stanwood and I think she had a little bit of a rough growing up. She tells stories about some hard things that she did as she grew up. But when she got married and she started having her own family, she was all in as a Mm -hmm. mom. I'm typing up uh, her journals. She was an avid journal writer. And these early days with young kids was all about her kids and the neighbor kids and the friend's kids. (laughs) I mean, she had extra kids there all the time. And she was just 100% all in as a mom. Um, she always did things to help raise money. In fact, there was a, an entry from 1978, and she was babysitting a friend's daughter for six hours a day, and she earned $3 a day taking care of this girl. Ooh. Can you imagine? No, no, I can't. Let's give a round of applause to Sylvia, because, yeah. oh God, $3. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And then when um, all of her own kids were a little bit older, she got a part-time job at a, at a daycare, helping with like as a lunch lady. So she was always doing something to help contribute. Um, and, and then as we all got older, she took on more and more work. Um, and like Susan said, she eventually became a secretary uh, for our uh, church and worked in their finance department. I'll let Susan tell all about her hobbies and what she liked to do.
1: Yes. Yeah, so she went to Washington State University and her major was at home economics, right? Home mm-hmm. economics. And so sewing, cooking, she was like the ultimate, what you would say, like homemaker. She, she could do it all. Sewing, cooking, and I would say serving others was one of her hobbies and talents. And she made us clothes. Like you look at pictures of us back in the 80s, and you know that mom made those with so much love. She made wedding dresses. She was the go-to to to make dresses for formal dances fit right on girls so they didn't have weird, you know, weird things hanging on their shoulders or things, she was the go-to. And because she knew so many people and was so involved in the community, she was the go-to. How many wedding
3: dresses do you think she did? I mean, probably 30 to 50. She did a lot. She altered wedding dresses for people, you know, hem or, you know, make them fit, whatever.
1: Yes, absolutely. She she made suits. She had this really special talent of being able to create things out of fabric that she probably wished that I would have picked up a little bit more, but Mm -hmm. I was like a teenager and I'm like, nah, I'm I'm good, (laughs) you know? Um, But in reading those journals, Joanne mentioned, we knew that her hands were involved in so many people's lives making meals taking care of their families be, do, knocking on their doorstep when they needed it and she just wanted to be a doer and she wanted to help others and know that they were important
2: what what was her personality which to me what i'm picturing is like very gentle very sweet is that how you would describe her
1: Yes. She was gentle and sweet. She was chatty. She was very, very chatty and she loved the mornings. She loved the mornings and not everyone loved the mornings like her, but she always had such a personality. I've read a lot of things actually just having passed five years without her being here anymore. We, I went back to her Facebook and kind of read comments, like the week that she passed, people would post things to Facebook and they said, I'll never forget
3: Sylvia
1: and the way she made me feel. She made me feel loved. I was new to the area. She made me feel like I was the most special person. And that was, a, I think a common factor between even strangers. She just had, she was short, never above five foot. And so she's this, maybe not so sweet and like quiet. She was like short short body, kind of, you know, had a, had a personality about her, a presence that was memorable. I love the anecdote
2: of, of loving the mornings. That's so sweet. That's like, I picture just a little, like with her cup of coffee. I wish I loved the mornings. I think I want to be more like Sylvia.
0: Yeah, me too. My
3: My mom never sat still. That was just a good way to explain my mom. So when FTD hit and she started only sitting and watching Mm -hmm. random TV shows, that was a big change for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even reading.
1: I think about, she used to love to read. she never watched TV. If she sat still, she was almost always reading or sewing. That's what that's what I think about. So another thing that FDD had changed was her ability to even follow a story like she
3: had loved for so long. And now Maria, yeah.
0: ask your favorite question. Do you guys want to share the story of how your parents met?
3: Let's see. They, my mom had graduated from college and my dad was had served a mission for- Uh, our church and was back in the area. His grandparents lived close to my mom's family's home and they happened to both be at church one day and they ran into each other. And I think the big joke was their first date was on April Fool's Day. (laughs) They chaperoned a dance or something like that.
1: Nice.
3: all throughout my mom's journals in these early years, she talks about how much she loved my dad. She's talking about like, this is what I fed my family. And these kids were over here today. And I'm grateful for Gary because I love him so much all the time. It's really Sweet. sweet. So
0: sweet. I love the love stories. They really come out when you, when you hear about the journey, you can really tell. And what woman would do all that? for a man she didn't love right sounds like she did everything right she did and with a smile on her face in the morning being chatty Oof, Ooh. I love it
2: (laughs) we need to have a little episode of like lessons from Sylvia like be (laughs) kind don't yell at your kids invite (laughs) neighbors over yeah
0: and feed I everybody. need to take some
2: tips. That's yeah, right.
0: I, you mentioned that early on about she could make meals for like a hundred people. Was that
3: feeding the neighborhood or the church or? A lot of work for the church. She, I was going to mention that uh, church was a huge part of who she was. And once people figured out she knew how to bake a hundred rolls, they asked her to do it for everything, for church dinners, for youth activities, you name it.
0: How do you think your mom would want to be remembered?
3: We talked about this actually, just as a,
1: to sidetrack a little bit, it's in, in the support that we do in volunteering with AFTD, we talk so much about our mom and while she had the disease. And so I think this is a really important reminder to us as well, to think about her, how was she before? And so thank you so much for this opportunity. Our mom was dependable. She was a doer. I know we've said that already. She never sat still. She wasn't someone that liked to be in the limelight, but she wanted to be a light to those around her. And I think that's how she is remembered and how she'd want to be remembered. Again, I mentioned she wouldn't want us to be here sad and not feeling like she's supporting us. I think she wants us to know that we are here as a family, we love one another and we want to keep her in our memory. And I think that's something that we have talked about as a family for, for many years.
0: That is so beautiful. She wouldn't want to be in the limelight, but she would want to be a light to those around her. That is poetic. That's beautiful. Anybody else? see? Everybody is staring at me. No, it's That's good. amazing.
2: It's really, really well said. And I don't know if we've ever had somebody say they believe their loved one would want to be remembered as dependable. That's a really like strong. I like it. I think we I really I do have her. to do a lesson from Sylvia post. I know. She dependable. Taught
1: she taught us to be dependable and hardworking and to help others because that was her example. She showed by example, she didn't actually say all the time, like, today we're going to help these people, today we're going to help these people. But being the youngest child, I knew that I was put taken to places where she was helping other people. And I just, I, I'll speak for myself, I was able to see her in action. And that's by following her example. And she taught us how to, to work hard and be that dependable person for those around us.
3: Another example is when she saw a need, she stepped up to fill it in school. She didn't ever want to be the PTA president, but there was a need. And she said, well, I can help there. And the next thing you know, she's the PTA president. So she's also was known as the band mom at our high school for as long as the four of us were there. And so again, she didn't ever set out to say, I want to be the band mom, but there was a need. And so she stepped in to fill that need.
0: That's beautiful. She sounds so amazing. I have a question that we don't normally ask, but Rachel and I, you know, are new to our grief. And I know a lot of our listeners, unfortunately, are now on the other side of this disease as we all are. Could you guys share with us kind of where you are in your grief five years out and how do you keep her close in your day-to-day life now?
1: That's a great question. I think some small things that we do. And uh, so now that I'm married, I have um, three awesome stepkids and like we, we talk about grandma Sylvia and we have pancakes on her birthday, you know, things that we do to kind of remember those big events, birthdays and things like that. She ended up loving IHOPs pancakes kind of the last few years, like the sugary, the better. The, the more sweet. <laughs> she's like, yep, put that frosting right in the middle of it. And so, you know, things like pancakes and just celebrating the events that she's not here for, but still remembering who she was, being able to share those memories, really being able to focus on, I know what's coming is hard. March 7th is a day we'll always remember. What is that feeling like? Honestly, I wrote a document. I typed it out, I think like a week after she passed away. And I go back to that document to remember what I was feeling at that time so that I can take on some of those emotions and remembering, honestly, the peace that I felt knowing that she wasn't suffering anymore. And so being able to do a few things for yourself, that will be helpful. Me writing things down is helpful for me to process. And so many of the memories that I had, I don't remember anymore because that moment was such... An interesting time in my life, nothing like I'd ever experienced. So I think finding things for yourself that will help carry on the legacy and memory of of the loved one. And honestly, things like this, this podcast, being able to remember who she was as a person and not only sharing her story as someone with
3: FGD and ALS. I would like to mention too, um, I have a couple of friends, maybe not even my best friends who on the anniversary of her passing, just send me a text every year and say, thinking about you. And I've learned from them that I need to be that kind of a friend to people around me. I need to remember some of these dates that are significant in their lives and just shoot them a text and say, hey, I'm thinking about you today. And that's been helpful for me. But it has been interesting to get to the five-year mark. I remember the first year was very hard. And I'd say the second year was very hard. I would say the fifth year was hard in different ways, and maybe that's it, right? Maybe we were dealing with a pandemic and other things, but our, my grief has changed over time. It seems to be less often, and when it hits, it's maybe um, stronger for a shorter period of time.
0: Interesting. Susan, just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned about writing how you felt a week after. That's so smart. I, and you made such an interesting point about reminding yourself that she was suffering because over time I have forgotten that feeling and I've just missed her, but I need, I do have to remind myself sometimes like she was, she was suffering, you know? And so I just think that's such an interesting and very thoughtful thing that you did to write that down and remind yourself. And I wonder if maybe some of our listeners will start to do that too. I kind of wish that I did. Maybe I'll write how I feel now. It's only like three months out. Right? I think
1: you should. I, I don't know what prompted me to do it, but I had so many feelings, and I like to do things like a brain dump. If my, if I wake up in the middle of the night and my brain's crazy, I just have to write it down, so then I can feel like it's not necessarily on my shoulders or in my mind. And so I think that's what I felt. We had, and we're so lucky to have the support of our community. We have our parents lived in the same house for over 30 years, close to 40. I don't even remember, honestly, a long, long time. And so they knew a lot of people and we were able to feel that support. And I wrote things like, I don't want to be selfish and wish that she was here while she was suffering. Things that were really, those aren't feelings that I necessarily think about anymore. And so I think it's really important if that's helpful to you to go back and remember not only you did feel peace in the situation that's so hard, but that people are here to support you as a person that's experienced this, this type of loss. And as Joanne mentioned that we could be that light to someone else, because now we have an experience that not everyone has gone through and being able to support one another. And that's what Sylvia would want.
0: I really feel like I have a great picture of who she is. So you guys did a great job. Great team. All right, Rachel, do you want to lead us into, uh, your other our favorite real, part? our real favorite part? Yeah this I think is probably
2: everybody's favorite part. Like what we're getting the feedback is like, you guys should put the letter at the beginning. Cause it's so good. We're like, no, you have to listen to the whole episode to get to the, like, you know, candy under the rainbow. So could you, or would you share words written by Sylvia and give us a little background? What are they, what is it from?
1: So, The journal that we've talked about, our mom was a journal writer. This is an excerpt from after, this is Susan, after I was born. So this was a little bit like two months after I was born. So back in the year of 1984, this was in April. And she just had a little bit of words. And Joanne actually shared this with me on one of my birthdays many years ago. And this is what she said. The surgery began. Gary was sitting near my head, dressed like a man from Mars. At 9.02 a.m. Susan Lene Butterfield was born. What a lovely baby girl. I was so happy. I wanted so much to hold her right away, but my arms were busy with IVs, etc. She was good sized, eight pounds, one ounce and 21 inches long. It was so special to see Gary holding her in his arms, a big smile on his face. I was able to hold Susan in the recovery room. Right from the start, she was very alert and with such wise-looking eyes, she seems to look right into your soul. Susan has lovely blue eyes and almost no hair, just a little pale brown fuzz.
3: But why was I
0: chosen to live this Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We release new episodes each week on Mondays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast, or you can visit our website, RememberMeFTD.com.
2: This podcast is produced by Rachel Martinez and Maria Kent Beers, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.
3: So-